this is a tough moment of attack that David is, is experiencing for at least two reasons. One, one of them being that it's, it's horribly mistimed, it's cruel. David's already going through one of the bleakest moments of his life. And it's at this very time when he's, he's before the nation, going through this shame and, and, and kind of sorrow that this man comes out from the gutter, it seems, and, and chooses to particularly stick the blade in, to twist the blade further. There's a cruelty about this attack. There's a, there's a deliberate cruelty in the timing. We have to be real about that. that. That happens. People can be like that. Life can be like that. Life is often apparently very unfair. And people who oppose us can, it seems, be particularly unfair, cruel in their timing. Uh, but there's also the fact that this is mis misinformed opposition. David at this stage is certainly not innocent. And we'll come back to that. But he's innocent of the things that Shimei is attacking him for. Shimei has got a long-term significant kind of super grudge that, that he's, he's carried as being part of uh, Saul's tribe. He, he belongs to the previous family. And in this kind of Game of Thrones world of Samuel, there's, there's these long-term family grudges that, that, that particularly flower at certain stages and show themselves in, in harsh rebuke or even in violence. But he, he is speaking of things that he's quite wrong about. He's misinformed. He's ignorant. David is not guilty of the bloodshed that Shimei is accusing him of. So it's cruel, poorly timed, misinformed. It's social media right there. It's, it's, it's the normal thing we so often hear about, the way in which Mainstream media and social media will often conduct their affairs shooting from the hip, making strong, harsh, personal attacks on people uh, to the point where they create a horrible atmosphere of bitterness and persecution and often without a shred of truth behind it. So David knows what this is like. Maybe some of you have tasted some of that. Maybe some of you tasted that on a big, epic scale. And you need to know the Bible the Bible lives in the real world. The Bible deals with, with the, the nuts and bolts, the toings and froings and troubles of real life. It might happen in a pre-digital age, but it's not a pre-human age. It's the same basic stuff. And I want us to see how David handles it, because the way he handles it is legendary. This is one of his shining moments and worth our attention because we can draw a lot from it. I'm going to just draw out three particular ways that he handles the cursings that come his way. First of all, he, he first of all remembers the bigger problem. He remembers that this, this apparent hostility that he's, he's seeing right now and all of his men are seeing and feeling the heat from, he sees it within the bigger picture. He sees actually that it's not the biggest problem he currently faces. It's worth just drawing that out briefly. It's there in, in verse 11 at the beginning where it says, David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite? You know, one of the kind of counterintuitive sort of secret lessons of life is that when, 
when things come at you that seem horrible, it's worth remembering that there are more horrible things still. <laughs> there are more horrible things that will come at you. And you need to sometimes broaden your lens to see the scale of difficulty and opposition. Not just to be kind of masochistic and more morose and, and get more suicidal about it, but actually to force yourself to see that the problems we face, if we see them properly, are God-sized problems. The problems that ultimately we need more than our own resources to solve. There's a place in Jeremiah where, where God speaks to Jeremiah, who's a lonely and uh, melancholic, tragic figure in the Old Testament. A, a remarkable, one of my heroes of the Bible, one of my total heroes. John Goldingay calls Jeremiah the life and soul of the funeral. So, <laughs> it's a perfect line. And, and Je Jeremiah, who goes through life, gives this terrible calling of having to preach uh, miserable kind of ends to, 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 to Judah and to Jerusalem and epic destruction and judgment on them. He, he sometimes sort of struggles and breaks down with despair over the horror of what he's having to say and how horrible his calling is and how painful it is. And there's one place in Jeremiah where God says, you struggle because you're running with men. How much harder will it be when you have to run with the horses? He's saying to you, if, you, if you're finding it hard now, <laughs> the, the bad news, Jeremiah, is it's going to get harder. It's going to get harder. Now, that sounds like a terribly dark thing to, to try and get healing from. But, but actually, for some of us, it may be a, a little secret that will save us from despair. Because when you go through choppy seasons, thinking, how am I going to handle this problem? How am I going to handle that difficult meeting next week? How am I going to handle that, that person who's working for me that I've got, to, I've got to say some things to, or even I've got to say some things to my boss? Or I, how am I going to handle this month with the finances? How am I going to get through this particular trial? Sometimes what we need to do is step back and say, hang on, life is much bigger than this particular trial. And if God is great, God has promised to deliver me from far greater things than this particular trial. This small trial in reality is, is small in comparison to the greater thing. David is saying, listen, I'm on the run from my own son who's becoming king back in Jerusalem. I've got bigger fish to fry, bigger problems than this Benjaminite who's come out to have a crack at me. Some guy trolling me on the internet, that's small fry compared to the big problems that I'm facing. And we can lose perspective entirely to our own cost by focusing only on the small issues. You realize, I often had to realize, that if we get our prayers answered as a church, and we're praying some more prayers this week as we, we gather on Wednesday night, Friday night here, that's going to that's gonna create some epic impact on our city. We'll run into much bigger problems than the ones we're facing now. If we get just 10% of our prayers answered, we'll have big hostility. Have you noticed that in the Bible? When God starts moving, the devil starts reacting. You can expect hardship whenever, even if the good things happen. If God answers your prayers, there will be reaction. There will be trouble. And I've sometimes in pastoring this church had to stop. And when we go through a wobbly time or difficult time, sometimes even, to be honest, with leaders, you just relational times, you just have to pray, say, God, help us to get through this and trust each other and love each other. Just sometimes it's, it's caused me to dig in a bit deeper and think, this is tiny 
compared to the real problems that we're going to face in 10 years if we get our prayers answered. And I know that sounds almost a little twisted, but it's actually real wisdom for us to keep the big picture. God, we're going to need your help on a far bigger scale than this. That helps me to see this within the right proportion, the right perspective. And it helps me as well to not waste my bullets on it. If you're out harpooning for, for whales, don't waste your ammo on shrimps. There are some big whales in this city. There are some big things we need to go after. There are some big dragons to slay. Who needs to go chopping the heads off lizards when there were dragons to slay? That's how David sees it. No, we, we are, we are not, I'm not going to get distracted by this little bit of attack. I want to see it within the big, big picture. And that's, that's a little bit of perhaps uh, counterintuitive wisdom, but it will save us from wasting time, wasting energy, losing sleep. But then secondly, I want to see how David remembers God's hand God's hand even in this. And you see that in, in a few places, but let me draw your attention especially to verse 10 and then the end of verse 11. The king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And at the end of verse 11, he says, even says it as strongly as this, Leave him alone. Let him curse for the Lord has told him to how do you cope with that verse you like that verse it's not a very 21st century nice Christian verse do you, do you have a God who lets people tells people to curse is your God that big is your God that sovereign your God that mighty. He's even got Satan under his control. He's even got a demonic lizard-like accuser completely under his control. Why is Shimei cursing? Because God told him to. It's not popular theology. A lot of people would rather these kinds of verses weren't in the Bible. Because we don't like perhaps to be told that the difficult, painful, even abusive and opposing things that can come at us in life, God is involved with them. God is sovereign in them. God is somehow behind them. I don't want that kind of God sometimes. I just want the God who's fluffy and means well and was surprised that something horrid happened to me this week. Didn't know anything about it. I'm so sorry. If, if I'd known, I might have tried to help. Not that I could have helped because I'm just nice. I haven't got any power. It's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is sovereign. Satan has to go and get permission to do stuff. David gets this, and it, it's, it's a fairly scary thing, but I've got to tell you, this truth has power to stabilize us, to stabilize you in your troubles. See, we need stabilizing. We, we need to understand that there is a God in control. Some of us, we would say that the main reason why we struggle that there should be a God. Some of us would say, well, I'm not even sure if there is a God. Maybe you're watching this in Shoreham or the race course or the villas or you're here today and you're saying, I, I'm not sure if, if I even believe in a God because of the trouble in this world. It seems out of control. It seems that the world is... is there can't be someone good behind everything. 
I've got to say, I completely understand that point. That is a fair point. That is a difficult question. So difficult, there's a whole book in the Bible called Job that tussles with that question and many other parts in the Bible too. So you're not asking the wrong question. But I'll tell you what, there are some stupid answers. One of them is, well, there can't be a God at all then. Yeah, that solves the problem. How does that solve the problem? How does that solve anything? If there's no God, that means there's no thing. There's nothing of any meaning in the world. It's all sheer accident. Everything is, including the suffering that we think we go through. It's not even real. It's not even real. Epic disasters and horrible things happen, and the pain that we go through in our own individual lives doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. And God, God shouldn't care. No one should care. Care doesn't even exist as a thing. It's a big it's a big mistake. It's a big illusion. Quotation from a biochemist and neuroscientist from a generation ago, Francis Crick, who was involved in the DNA discovery. He put it like this. You, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. That's, that's all there is. That's all you are. If there's no God, if there's no meaning to history, there's no meaning to you, there's no meaning to your pain, there's no one to cry out to and say, why? Why am I going through this? No one will hear you. In fact, you don't even exist. The person saying why is just an accident. Your consciousness is an illusion. How does, how does there being no God really help with this? Now, we might struggle with the, the peculiar outcomes of history and the things in our lives that just seem so horrible. Why would this be happening to me? Why is this person abusing and attacking me? Why, why is this going on at all? And that's a painful experience and a good question, but a question we've got to bring to someone. We must be able to bring it to someone who's in authority, who's over all things and in control. And it's because David is sure of that that he's got extra resources to withstand the challenge. He knows that God's in control. He knows that this wouldn't be happening if God hadn't allowed it. But it still begs the question, why does God do these things to David? I thought David was his, his wonderful servant. I thought God loved David. I thought God had a good plan for David's life and thought things would turn out well for David. Surely, why would God allow these things to happen? And this is where we got to come to grips with one of the big teachings of the Bible, that, that God actually expresses love to us as a father partly by what, what the Bible would call discipline. What we would still call discipline. The Bible sometimes calls it chastening. There's places in Scripture that really help to explain this. One of them is in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, which, quoting the Proverbs, says this, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. David's, David's wise enough, knows God enough, understands his God well enough to see, see how this, 
this painful moment in his life might be fitting. It might, it might be something that God's doing deliberately. There, there are a couple of ways, it seems, that we can fall off the horse when it comes to God's discipline. It says here, there's a couple of ways we can get this wrong. It says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. But then it also says, nor be weary when reproved by him. Those seem to me to be opposing failings. If you're trying to sit squarely on the horse of God's discipline and being trained and staying in the lane, making sure that you're, that you're continually making progress in your walk with God and he's raising you and you're responding to his fatherly love in your life, you will have to defy two possible failings. One is to get weary under the Lord's discipline. When, when, when God brings something across your path, when God allows something in your life, when God brings a, a shimei or maybe some kind of version of him into your life, one of the, the temptations will be to interpret it as God is against me. I'm weary. It wearies us. It brings a kind of bitterness and a, a sickness, a heart sickness to us where we just think, oh, God, where is God? And God, if you're real, then this, 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 you, this is out of your control. And you, you clearly don't really love me. You clearly aren't really my father. Or maybe you were until recently, and I've done something. I've, I've fallen short. I have blown it. I'm outside of your fatherly care because this circumstance proves it. Something's gone right out of whack between me and my father that I thought I had in heaven. That's what the, the writer here says is, he calls being weary weary in the Lord's world. I think that this isn't helped by a quite shallow one-dimensional view of fatherhood that 21st century Westerners have inherited from maybe a generation or two or three losing our, our understanding of what fatherhood means. So even in Christian circles, when we celebrate the fatherhood of God, we tend to reduce it quite often to a, a very sentimental version. God would never allow anything bad to happen to me because he's a good, good father. That's who he is. That's who he is. And because I'm loved by him, therefore, we make the false deduction. I'm not knocking that song. It's, the words are good, actually. But we can so misunderstand this theme that we reduce God's fatherhood to something quite shallow. He will only ever allow lovely things in my life. And so, therefore, if anything unlovely comes in my life, he's not my father anymore. David's got a way bigger view of fatherhood than that. And you should have as well. We, our society needs it. We need to see fathers who love their children by training them, by disciplining them, by teaching them, sometimes through difficulty and pain. Actually, this is how I grow. This is how I learn. This is how I inherit life. This is how I thrive and flourish in life. Is because I have a father who loves me enough to train and teach and discipline me. That's the clear teaching of Scripture, friends. And we, we can't sort of get around it without losing out badly on the things that God wants to bring into our lives. And we can fall into a terrible self-pity as a result. The second way we fall off the horse, though, is a kind of flippancy. It says, don't, don't be weary, but it says before that, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. It's just as much of a threat, surely. God can bring things into our, our path and we simply toss it off. We don't notice. We just ignore. We just, just, just forget that. It bounces off us. Because we're not training our hearts and minds to think, is God trying to teach me something through this? Is this a circumstance that he's using in my life? Maybe because we're scared of overdoing that and becoming introspective, which is a danger. 
and that's the kind of weariness that's on the other side of the horse, we overreact to the point where we never really hear God speak to us through our circumstances. We never, we never allow the pains and difficulties to do their work, to have their say. Instead, we kind of reject them and resist them. There's a version of this that can happen in our relationships with people that God puts in our life who might, out of genuine loving concern, try to offer their constructive criticism, their correction, their, their suggestions, and out of a kind of defensiveness, fear, pride, we simply won't hear them. We do kind of what Abishai wants to do in this story. You notice? What's Abishai's response to a guy who's bringing some constructive criticism to David? Abishai says, well, let's, let's take his head off. That will solve the problem. Just kill him. Kill him. Silence him. You'll have no more problems with him. We'll silence him. Very hard for Benjaminites to speak when their head's been removed. And that's how we will handle criticism very often. I, I tell you, this is why some marriages get very cold. This is why some of us have very shallow relationships in the end. Because people aren't allowed to offer us their criticism. They're not allowed to. We wonder a few years later why we don't really know anybody anymore. Nobody knows us. We have kind of polite friendships, but we don't have real relationships because people have tried to offer their suggestions and we've responded by swiping off their heads. We just cut them short, cut them dead. We don't want to know. I won't, I won't hear that. And, and we wonder years later, why. I wonder, I, wonder if, I wonder if I've actually ended up making cyclically stupid decisions which I could have been rescued from if I just listened to the wisdom of my wife or my husband or my friends or my small group leader or people that God gave me just to bless me and to protect me. But my constant automatic response was, no, 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 no. won't hear that. won't hear that. This again. Oh, I always hear. People always say this, but they don't understand. They don't understand. Maybe you should think they do understand if, if several people are saying the same thing. Only you are right about this. Surely at least deserves a listen. Deserves a, a patient ear, a response of soft-heartedness. Uh, it's true. Sometimes we have to stubbornly hold out because we do know something that others don't know. But friends, we could easily use our courageous stand as a Trojan horse, as a fig leaf for what's in the end, just pride, hard-heartedness, stubbornness, and you are the biggest loser. And so is your family and the people around you that you don't even get to really walk with properly because they're scared of even raising their comments, raising their heads, raising their suggestions. Somehow David doesn't fall into that error either. He receives this, 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 this voice. <laughs> He, let, he, lets, he lets God use a man to bring some, some powerful challenge, it seems, at this stage. And he doesn't fall off the horse to either side of weariness or flippancy. He's genuinely self-aware through it all. Are you self-aware? How is your self-awareness? There's an obvious warning attached to that. If you think your self-awareness is really high... It's probably not. 
Do you, do you see? Do you see yourself as others see you? How, how are you doing at that? David refuses Abishai's policy of decapitation. We won't go there. We're going we're gonna to let God have his way in this painful situation. And it is painful. There's a hint there in verse 14. They got to the Jordan and they were weary. They arrived weary. Friends, when God wants to bring about discipline in our lives and bring about change and correction, when God wants to say to you, this part of your life, I want it changed. When God brings things up, don't expect that to only ever be cuddly. It, it won't be just cuddly. There'll be a pain to it. There'll be a, there will be a certain weariness to it. There will be a certain sense of, wow, this is quite difficult. God is kind enough to make it hurt a little bit sometimes. Some of us, we've struggled with addictions, habits, and we've struggled with them for years, partly because we've allowed, consciously or not, we've allowed ourselves to live with the myth that unless the solution is painless, I'm not going to go there. The solution to my porn addiction must be painless. Well, probably you're stuck with your porn addiction then. There's going to be some pain. The solution to, to my, my addiction to narcotics, the, the solution to my alcohol abuse, it's going, to, it's, going to, it's going to be cuddly and lovely. I'm going to feel warm all the way through it. And I'm never going to look back because I'll just feel so joyful all the way through it. I hope so, but don't assume that. Don't assume that. Be prepared for what he says here, the, the process of correction, the process of God letting something happen that's painful. It may be God's blessing. The process of change, there's pain in it. God allows it. Is that all there is to say about God from this story? Well, no, we've got a few minutes left. Let's go to the third point. This is, this is delightful. Let's just see the final thing. You'll be grateful for this bit. David remembers... He remembers the bigger problem. He remembers God's hand, but he also remembers the grace of God. The grace of God. How do we see that? Well, it's interesting. You actually probably in your translation, in my translation, which is usually good, that there's a disappointment here. In verse 12, it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for this cursing today. Some of you may have a better translation. That the original Hebrew text, uh, which, which was, uh, there's technical reasons why translators have gone with this version. But there are good reasons to go with a, a, an, another manuscript which would say, the Lord will look upon my iniquity, iniquity, and repay me with good. The reason why that gets airbrushed out, perhaps, or, you know, the ancient translator or ancient manuscript uh, uh, compendium, you know, Ch chose the, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which goes with this affliction version, is perhaps because it makes apparently more sense. Why would God look on our iniquity, which means our sin, <laughs> and repay us with good? That can't possibly happen. So let's say it says affliction instead. Some of the other translations, that, that, let's go, that must be the right one. That, if we've got a choice between the two, we'll go with that one. But like some commentators rightly say, actually, if you know the God that David knows, iniquity is quite the appropriate word. David's saying, my hope is in a God who looks upon my wickedness and repays me with good. 
That's, that's all that David's got to cling to in the end. Why is David going into exile? Why is all this horrendous stuff happening? In the end, David knows it's because of what he did. He slept with another man's wife, and when it looked like he was going to get found out, he killed the man and his comrades in the army. He had them killed. David did something unspeakably evil, and he knows it. He knows it. And he knows what he's getting today from this cursing Benjaminite. It's no, no more than he deserves. He knows himself. He knows his wickedness. He knows he's done an evil thing. He knows he's an evil man. He knows he's a sinful man. He knows that much. But he also knows a God who looks on me at my worst. At my very worst. And repays me with good. He knows that God. David has an extraordinary God. And this means a couple of things. It means that for David, this isn't an issue of dead dog, my lord the king. That's what Abishai said. Shimei is a dead dog. You are my lord the king. David knows enough to know, uh-uh. Dead dog, lord the king, also dead dog. He knows himself. He's not, he's not full of his status. He's not full of spiritual pride. He's not self-righteous. He understands himself. He understands that that phrase, dead dog, could be just as usefully used for him as it is for this Benjaminite. Yeah, I'm a bad guy. I did a bad, bad thing. And my father has loved me and forgiven me and treats me with utterly undeserved, unmerited favor, kindness, it's the story of his life. What's happening in this story is the fulfillment of some promises that Nathan gave him, a prophet, in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, where he says to David, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David's going through what God, God promised in 2 Samuel 12. I'm going to have to train you, son. I'm going to have to discipline you. I'm going to have to take you to the woodshed, in other words. I'm going to, there's going to have to be something that you don't want happening because I love you too much to let you carry on in this wickedness. I'm going to deal with you, my son. That's the promise of God in 2 Samuel 12. But there's a bigger promise a few chapters back in 2 Samuel 7. Where the same God, in fact, through the same prophet, says to the same king these extraordinary words. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went. And I've cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, 
and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David's got a promise of God's punishment, discipline for his wickedness, but he's got a greater promise of God's utterly undeserved fatherly care, not just for the rest of his life, but for his family tree forever and ever. David knows too much. He knows that he truly has a good, good father who will never stop doing him good, ever, ever. And even this pain that he's bringing into his life now is meant for his good. And he knows it. He knows it. He's standing in it. He's living in it. He walks with it. He daily is, he's learned over his years to just receive with confidence, I am loved by my father. He loves me when I'm good. He loves me when I'm bad. He loves me all the time. And even in the difficulty and in the pain, he is loving me. Completely loving me through the pain. Yes, he's loving me then. He intends it for my good. Which is why, staggering as it is to us, David writes one of his most beautiful psalms at this point in his life. Some of us know the psalms, the big hymn book of the Bible, 150 songs, are mostly written by David. The third of which contain this beautiful line. You are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. This is David's meditation while he's going through cursings. He's hearing, perhaps sort of in his outer ear, he can hear the kind of yelling of this nasty Benjaminite from the mountainside. Just, you know, the outer kind of fringes of his audible reference. He's kind of got this, this kind of nasty background noise, this nasty chirping voice, these snide remarks coming at him. But I guess David has learned to replace the background noise with an inner voice. You are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Yeah, an adulterer, a murderer. He knew what he was. My father, you are my shield. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. My friends, you, you'll come across things in your life, maybe even this week, that will shock you in their hostility. People will accuse you. Voices will come at you. People will say things that will be cruel. and Not true. Sometimes people who should know better. Sometimes even people in your family. You'll think, God, why would you allow this why would you let this happen to me? Some of you are going through it right now. You know exactly what I'm talking about. I tell you, do what David did. See the hand of God. It's all under God's perfect control. And the kind of God he is, is the one who sees you at your worst, sees that even these cruelties are not worse than what you deserve because of the sin that's in our hearts. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 3, he who tries to be righteous by the law is under a curse. All of us, even the ones who've done really well in Emmanuel Church, or if you're not a Christian, just a friend here today, you think, I've lived quite a good life. The Bible says no, none of us have lived a good life. Not really. All of us are guilty, just like David. We're all under a curse. But there was somebody who took the curse in his body on the tree. Shimei is throwing his rocks and his dust and his hurls of abuse 
there was someone who knew exactly what that was like on the cross, hanging naked with abuse thrown at him from every direction. Even the curse of his father's anger hurled at him. Jesus received it all. Why? So that we can be safe, so that we can have honor, so that we can have a shield around us who is the glory and the lifter of our heads. All of us, all of us who trust him, all who belong to Jesus, you, you don't have to fight for your honor or your reputation. Isn't that the temptation? If I get dishonored, instantly, knee-jerk response, I want some honor back. I want my reputation safe. You don't need to fight for it because you have a God who's fighting for it already. He is your glory, your glory, your honor. He's got you a place at his table. He's building a mansion for you. He's, he's, you will be honored at his, at his side. You, your place is written. Your name is on the palm of his hand. Talk about honor. Name on the hand of God, the lifter of my head. I don't have to imagine that my days will be spent in discouragement and despair as the world turns against me, the world turns against the church and turns against Christians. And what a horrible prospect that we're just going to live as Christians in a difficult world with sorrow and a burden of disappointment with the world and not really fitting in anymore. No, no, no. That's not our story. He's the lifter of our head. He makes it his business to bring you joy. To bring you joy is his concern. So we don't have to live trying to fight for it, fight back for it. No, no, be free. Let God be sovereign. Let God be sovereign and receive his grace. Let him look on your iniquity, even your worst things, and you can know the cross has dealt with all of it. As we come to the table, as we will in just a moment, this is our opportunity to do just that, to remind ourselves, to meditate on his amazing grace and receive strength from it. Let's just pray right now. Father, thank you for this Jesus who took our curse. Thank you so much that we in him have found security, we found a shield, we found honor, we found joy. I pray help us to stand strong and firm in the grace of God the grace of a good father who knows what he's doing, to fight the right battles and to know, know your promise of sustaining grace through all of it. Amen.